Oh, Lord Jesus, we do just praise you. You are wonderful. You are holy. You are worthy and awesome. And boy, Lord, we love being here today to say it. To think that you are the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, that you are so holy and so worthy, and yet you died for me. You died for us. Lord, gosh, it seems so very small to say we praise you, to say we thank you in light of what you've done. But Lord, we do come in this moment to say just that. And God, we also come in this moment to open your word. So that we can see our lives come more and more into a place where the way we live joins our words in saying, we praise you and you are worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we're, uh, we're not going for a new look in case you're wondering up here. Scott broke my pulpit this week, just smashed it to pieces and then blamed it on the children's pastor, Buddy Ham. Pretty much if anything goes wrong in the church, we just go straight to Buddy, blame it on him. He's kind of the whooping post. But uh, then the best part is he didn't tell me he broke my pulpit. And so I, I come in here last night for the, the Saturday night service and he's got, I think he went and got something at a garage sale or something. It had duct tape on it and crayons. There was a sign that said, please return the donuts to the pantry. Uh, and, you know, and he puts up like, I'm not going to notice or something, you know. So uh, I think there's going to hopefully be one here soon. But uh, so now if I seem a little nervous today, I don't have a pulpit to hide behind. So just, you know, bear with me. We don't have that today. I'm sure you're familiar with the name George Steinbrenner. That's an individual that is about as committed to winning as it gets, uh, building a team. He once said that winning is the most important thing in life next to breathing. Winning or breathing first, winning second. And I tell you, if you watch George Steinbrenner's life, you know he's not kidding. You might know George Steinbrenner is the uh, owner of the New York Yankees. He bought the team in 1973, and I bet a lot of you've forgotten this. He bought that team for $10 million. I mean, the Bat Boy makes $10 million for the Yankees today. So he buys that team, and uh, boy, he very quickly gained a reputation for doing whatever it takes. As a matter of fact, he usually went too far in doing whatever it takes. In an unprecedented move, Major League Baseball banned him from running his own team. He can't be involved in the day-to-day operations of the New York Yankees. He went through 20 managers in the first 23 seasons. So he did whatever it took. On a more positive note, and this is probably what he's most well known for, is he will spend whatever money it takes to get the best player that the market has available. And what that's produced is a team that year after year has the highest paid salary. The New York Yankees this year, their annual salary just for the baseball players is $195 million for that team. Now, just to put that in context, the second highest paid team, anybody know who that is? It'd be the Red Sox. That's right. There you go, Colin. Uh, the Boston Red Sox are the second highest paid team, but they are over $50 million behind in what the New York Yankees pay. Now, of course, you look at those kind of numbers, you have to ask, has it produced? What well, was it worth the price? 
Well, in his tenure of being an owner, they have won the, or they've been to the World Series seven times. And they've won it six of those seven times, and that's certainly more than anybody else in that time period. So on one hand, you could say it was worth it. Of course, the other side of that is a whole lot more than seven times he's had the highest paid team on the field and not even made it to the playoffs. It is tough building a winning team. There's so many factors that you have to look at, obviously personnel, but then there's chemistry, there's resources, there's health, there's opportunity. And sometimes only one of those factors has to be just a little off before you reach in and secure defeat. Of course, every now and then the factors all come together, everything works and you win. But even that's temporary. Even that only lasts for a moment. What about the church? Gosh, the church, we want to build a winning team, don't we? Doesn't the church want to be a a, a team that wins? What about all of those factors for us? Gosh, is is the body of Christ, are the people that make up the church, are we the best that money has to buy in the world? We would come back to that later. What about chemistry? What about the chemistry that takes place among God's people? Gosh, you ever heard somebody out in the world say, I don't go to church. They're too mean to each other in there. Okay, so maybe our chemistry always isn't that great. What about resources? Gosh, sometimes it seems like the word church and not enough are synonymous. Not enough space, not enough money, not enough volunteers. Yeah, we, we struggle with resources sometimes. It can be tough to build a winning team. You know, I guess we could look up at God and say, Hey, Lord, aren't you as committed as George Steinbrenner to building a winning team? What do you think God would say? Yeah, I I think He probably would say, I've provided all the factors. When are you going to pick it up and do something with it? Would you look with me this morning at Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you'll grab one there in the pew and open it up. Read along with us. Keep it open during the the message here. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 7. Ephesians 4, verse 7. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up of itself in love by the proper working of each Each individual part. 
Now, that's a a lengthy passage. It's kind of a difficult passage. There's a a lot of interpretive issues here that are a little bit challenging. There's some kind of different ideas, some different words that we don't read a lot. As a matter of fact, I don't know that this passage can really be treated fairly in one message, but I am going to do it in one message, and I'm going to try to present what I believe is really a pretty simple and straightforward idea. Now, you'll remember last week in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, we were challenged, really commanded, Commanded to walk worthy, to live in a way that is worthy of God's work in our lives. We're to walk in a way that is worthy of God's love. And we saw that the, that worthy response was defined for us. We are to diligently keep the unity in the body of Christ. You know, we, I said last week, we might not look at something like that and think, oh, that, that's, that's the need of my life right there. That's the thing I've been needing to hear. You know, when we think about the needs in our life, the issues we've got coming this week, we might not look at that and say, that's what I need right now. But what we saw is that's a whole lot more important to our individual well-being than we might have ever given credit for. And and the reason for that is, is because, folks, if we're going to join God and God's going to join us, we have to become a part of God's character, a part of God's design. And God's character and design is unity. That's what was illustrated for us in verses four to six. And we ended last week by saying, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you've got to arm yourselves to go after unity. Remember that? You've got to arm. A, you've got to attend. You've got to be where believers are. You've got to gather with them. You've got to relate. It's not just coming in and sitting. The gathering of believers is not a restaurant where we come in, sit down, get fed, and then we're on about our business. We've got to relate with each other. And we've got to minister. That last word, minister, is where our passage today is going to take us a little bit further. Because what we're going to see is God has equipped, God has enabled every member of the team, every part of the body of Christ with a special gift so that we can maintain, so that we can keep this unity. And that's what's being referred to here as we start in verse 7. It says, now, grace was given to each one of us. Now, when you and I hear that word grace, we're used to kind of thinking about our salvation. We might even think that's what that's saying there. Salvation was given to each one of us. You know, that word grace means undeserved favor, unmerited favor. That word also means enablement. An enablement is given. A gift is given. An ability is given. And it is given by grace. It's given as a gift. In other words, our ability, and we're talking now about spiritual gifts... That gift that is given to us is not given because we we took a class. It's not given because we got a certification. It's not given because we're, you know, coming along in the Lord and maturing. And when we reach a certain spot, then we're given this ability. No, it's given as a grace. It's given as a gift. That's an extremely important note. Because one of the misunderstandings, and it goes all the way back to the New Testament, you see Paul addressing it in 1 Corinthians, and it's still today, is people treat gifts as somehow setting me above. You know, I've got this gift, that, that makes me a little bit better. Or I've got this gift, so that means I'm going a little bit further, a little bit deeper in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I've heard it a lot. It seems like two gifts that do that for people are speaking in tongues and being able to give a word of prophecy. There's something about those gifts that kind of lead people to believe I'm, I'm heading deeper in Christ. I, I've got a little bit more depth in my walk in relationship with Him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do you know what having a spiritual gift says about you? Nothing. 
Did you know that the weakest believer in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift? The newest believer in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift. It is something that God gives to everybody coming onto the team. Everybody, the moment of their salvation, is given this enablement. So having a gift does not set us apart or mark us as being, you know, growing and mature. As a matter of fact, it's not the gifts of the Spirit to do that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. What's fruit? Fruit's product product of growth. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that mark somebody as going deeper in Christ. Those are the things that mark somebody as maturing and growing, not the exercising of a spiritual gift. Now, Paul goes on here to say, in the rest of this verse, grace was given to each one of us. Everybody has a gift to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. According to the measure of the Messiah's gift. That little phrase right there simply means Jesus determines who gets what. Jesus determines who gets what spiritual gift and how much of that gift that they get. Jesus is the determinant of that. There again, why is that note important? We can't look at our gifts and say that it says something about us that separates us from others. Jesus is telling us this here so that we don't compare against each other. And we don't, we're not supposed to be thinking, well, why do, why do I have that gift and, and, and they have that gift? Or how come I've only got this much of that gift and they seem to have this much of that gift? God doesn't give the gifts for us to compare ourselves. He doesn't give the gifts. The, the gift shouldn't lead me to jealousy. Because I don't have what you have. And it shouldn't lead me to arrogance. Because I have this and you don't. We don't compare gifts. Jesus determined according to his purpose and his will who would get what and how much of that. You might still say, well, gosh, that that seems a little unfair. I I wish I got the gift that they got. We need to remember there the character qualities of Christ. He's good. He's loving. And he's just. That means he's not going to do anything. He can't do anything that's not good, loving, and just. Those qualities apply to when Jesus was determining who would get what spiritual gifts and how they would be used. When he did that, he was being good. He was being loving. He was being just when those gifts were assigned. He has the right to do that. Now, I'm comfortable with Jesus having the right to do that, aren't you? I don't have a problem with that. that, That's good. Jesus is in charge. That's cool. That works for me. But actually, that's what verses is happening in verses 8 to 10. Paul is is explaining Jesus' right to determine this. Again, I, I wouldn't need that. But Paul gives us the basis for Jesus doing that. And this is a, a part of the passage that... This, this is a quote here from Psalm 68. And again, there is a lot of scholarly ink spilt on trying to figure out how he uses that quote. It's a, it's a paraphrase. And then how he applies it and how it compared to the passage that it, it came out of. It's, it's just difficult. But if I could just kind of jump ahead and tell you where I think it's going. Because I think there's a real simple idea here. This passage is basically saying Christ arose. He ascended the victor from the battle. He's the commander in chief. He's the general. And guess what? The general gets to assign the weapons and the machinery to the individual shoulder soldiers that he wants to. 
I mean, makes sense, doesn't it? And, and that's what he's saying here. Jesus descended. He descended to the earth. He descended into death. And he defeated the enemy. The enemy is sin, Satan, and death. By the way, you and I were captives. We were captives to sin, Satan, and death. And so when He descended and defeated those enemies, He released us. He gave us freedom. We rose with Him. We ascended with Him. And then He gave us special abilities. He gave us special gifts to join Him in the battle. I mean, the simplest way to say verses 8 and 10 is just simply this. Jesus won the battle, broke us out of prison, and then gave us abilities to join Him in carrying on that battle. Now, when you think about what we learned last week, I mean, this, this is really a beautiful tie together that, that Paul is doing. Last week we were said, man, when I look at what Christ has done for me, I want to respond in a way that is worthy. Well, what's Christ done for me? He freed me. He freed me from sin. He freed me from death. He freed me from Satan. Well, what better way to respond to that than to pick up this ability that He's given me and join Him in freeing others. Join Him in helping others grow in that freedom. Enjoy that freedom. That's how we respond in a way that is worthy. So last week we see God challenging us, commanding us to respond in a worthy way. And this week we see He enables us to do it. He gives us the ability to respond to Him in a way that is worthy. And then we come into verse 11 and we start looking at what some of these gifts, what some of these abilities are. And you see the, a couple of them listed there in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, pastoring, and teaching. These are not the only gifts that are given. As a matter of fact, you go to passages like 1 Corinthians 12, you go to Romans 12, you see, uh, you, you see some crossover, some similarity between the list. 1 Corinthians 12 gives us the longest list of spiritual gifts, but in these, that makes up the gifts, the gifts that we use, the kinds of things that God gives to give people abilities. I, for one, hold the opinion, and that's what it is. It's an opinion. I'm not dogmatic. I don't argue about this. It's just my belief that the list is not static. Sometimes we look at this list of gifts and we say, that's the list. Well, actually, it doesn't ever really say this is the list and there is no more. And I think part of what proves that is the fact that you go to different places in the Scripture and there's different lists of what was in operation in that church. I think some gifts potentially come on the list. I think some, some gifts potentially come off. For me, again, this is just an opinion, and, and I think I'm going to probably send some people nuts here. I believe the gift of prophecy has passed off the list. Now, when you say, oh my gosh, what are you saying? Probably, if you disagree with me, we're arguing about the definition of prophecy, not the gift. I define prophecy as revealing truth about Christ, revealing truth about God that we didn't already know. We wouldn't know. It is also, obviously, when you hear the word prophecy, has a very future-oriented flair to it. Well, they needed the gift of prophecy all throughout and up through about 300 A.D. But guess what? Once we have a completed Bible, I believe an opinion 
just an opinion, that once you've got the completed Bible, that the need for prophecy is not the same. As a matter of fact, Second Peter chapter 1 says, everything I need for life and godliness is in this book right here. I do not need somebody to come give me a word of prophecy so that I can effectively follow Christ, so that I can faithfully follow Christ. Everything I need for living life, for living in godliness, is inside this book. So, potentially, not as a fact, not that I know, not that I would take you to the verse, potentially, that would be a gift that has passed off. I believe other gifts have probably come on. I don't know that there's not gifts today that would deal with technology and some of the things that we can use in the church to, to reach people and to, to grow the church. I mean, you think about it, folks, what a church needs to faithfully and effectively follow God in 67 A.D. might be different from 2007 A.D. It's going to look different in Africa than it's going to look in America than it's going to look in China. There's a difference between rural and urban. Churches have different needs. The bottom line is this. God, our team owner, knows what the team needs and He provides the abilities for that team to function. Now, you look at these abilities given here that are referred to at the church of Ephesus and these all look like leaders. I mean, a lot of us would say, well, gosh, you know, none of this applies to me, but that's, that's not actually the case. These are not all just necessarily issues of leaders. As a matter of fact, these are not a reference to the office. In other words, that word pastor, that's not a reference to me. That, that's not a reference to what, is I, to what I do. As a matter of fact, you ready for this? I don't believe I have the gift of pastoring. So I knew that we should probably not have hired him. I couldn't, I couldn't quite put my thumb on it. No, you know, I think a senior pastor is going to have one or two uh, of three probable gifts to, to effectively function in that role. They're going to have the gift of pastoring. They're going to have the gift of preaching. Or they're going to have the gift of leadership and administration. I don't think you're going to have, I don't think you're going to have a person that has much more than three gifts. I tend to believe a person does doesn't have more than one or two. You say, well, well, why do you believe that? It's just kind of the function of it all. Folks, God gives us gifts so that we're all interdependent upon each other. If I had all the gifts, if I, if, if I'd be one just kind of like walking, talking church and I wouldn't need you. No, but I do need you. And you need me. And so the Scripture doesn't really show people having just a multitude of gifts. No, we're given one, maybe two special abilities. Jim Hassett came up to me last night and said, You didn't have the gift of pastoring. I've seen you preach and I've seen you lead. What do you have? So uh, I hope Jim hears that on the radio. He's always asking what the difference is between the Saturday night service and the Sunday. So, Jim, when you hear this, I didn't use your name in the service last night. Now you say, well, you know, you don't have the gift of pastoring, but you know what? A number of you out there do. That doesn't mean you've disobeyed God and you didn't answer the call into ministry. This is not about a vocational office. It's not about answering the call into ministry. God is going to fill the church up with people who have the gift of pastoring. The word pastor there means shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He watches over sheep. He makes sure they're being fed. He makes sure they're safe. He leads them to good places. There are people out here in this room right now who have the ability, whether it's dealing with one or two people or, or dealing with a handful of people, you've got the ability to, to kind of guide, care, protect, and help develop them in their relationship with the Lord. What, what, what Paul's doing right here is not setting out leaders. I think what he's really doing is showing how a set of gifts, a small set of gifts, kind of got things rolling. You've got 
the gift of evangelism that leads people to Jesus Christ. Of course, once they come to Christ, they need what? A church. Apostles have the ability of establishing and building churches. Prophets revealed information about this Christ that they placed their faith and trust in. Pastors guided, cared for, and protected these people as they grew in this relationship with Christ. And teachers discipled, built, trained them up in the knowledge of Christ. So he's giving us, I think, just a a smattering of some of these beginning gifts that kind of got the ball rolling with this new team we have called the church. And this is not, uh, what this is not doing here is showing us a few leaders who do all the ministry of the church. As a matter of fact, folks, the New Testament has no idea of a small select group of people who have the responsibility of doing the ministry. As a matter of fact, what you see here in, in verse 11 and verse 12 is that there is a small select group of people who have the responsibility of making sure the whole body is doing the ministry. That they're trained, that they're motivated, they're encouraged, they're challenged, they're warned. We all need to be doing this. And so that's what Paul is laying out for there. We all pick up our gift. And by the way, having a gift doesn't mean that's the one assignment you have. For instance, I said, I don't have the gift of pastoring. Does that mean I'm absolved of all pastoring duties? You say, no, no, we're, we're paying you to do that. Well, you know what? Even if I wasn't being paid, that doesn't mean I'm absolved of that. Let me give you an example. There's a gift of evangelism. We see that right here, don't we? Every member of the body of Christ is commanded to evangelize. Every one of us is to go out and tell the good news. But God has made sure that on this team, there's a handful of people that have a unique and special ability in doing that. We all know we've been commanded to have faith, don't we? And yet, the whole entire church has to have faith. We know it's impossible to please God without it. But God has made sure that on each team, There's a group of people who have great ability for believing on God greatly on behalf of this entire church. There's the gift of giving. The whole church, every believer is commanded to give. But God makes sure that there is a select group, a special group that will have a unique ability in doing that. So having a gift doesn't mean this is the one thing I do and then I have no other responsibilities in the church. No, let me tell you something. If it's a command that we all do it, then we all do it. And we praise God. He's made sure that some of us are going to do it really well so that the church functions like it should. And Paul says, man, when everybody in the church picks up their gift and starts doing with it what they should, some great things happen. One, the church is built. But when we say the church is built, we're we're talking about that in every way you understand it. It's built numerically. It's built quantitatively. When the church is doing everything God designed for it to do, guess what? It reaches people. People are drawn to that. But it's not just grown in numbers. It's not just grown in quantity. It's grown in quality. When all of us are functioning, when all of us are picking up that gift and using it, you know what happens? A greater number of us reach God-likeness. Godliness. We grow in Christ-likeness. It it, it means growth in the church as a whole, not just individuals, but as a whole, we grow more and more and more into being and doing what God has put us here to be and do. To be salt, to be light, to be that proclaimer of righteousness. How does the church effectively do that? It's when, look at that last phrase in verse 16. It's when each individual part, do you see that word individual? When each individual part plays its role, that's when the church 
functions as it's supposed to. Not only does, is the church built, but we also get some great uh, uh, results from that. We get maturity. We get stability. You know, we said last week, and I started in the review today, we might not look at passages like this and say, now that's the need for my life. No, we think about the things we got going on this week, and that doesn't answer, that doesn't help me. No, think about it, folks. Would maturity be helpful in any of the issues that you're dealing with right now? Would stability... What's maturity and stability? What's maturity? When you say something's mature, that means it's come kind of into the fullness of what it was created for. The fullness of what it's designed for. It's at, it's at full strength. It's at full knowledge. It's at full reproduction. Well, let me ask you something. Being at the fullness of how you were designed, do you think that would help in some of the things you're dealing with? How, how about stability? What's stability mean? I mean, grounded. Locked in. I'm not easily thrown off balance. I'm not easily thrown off center. I'm not easily tricked. I'm ready for the wind. I'm ready for the storm. I'm ready for the attack. That's what stable means. And so Paul's saying here, do you want maturity in your life? Do you want stability in your life? Guess what? When you pick up the special gift God's given you, and you join what God is doing in this world, stability and maturity are going to result in your individual life. But again, it's not just about the individual life. It's about the whole. Do you want your church to be mature? Do you want your church coming into the fullness of what God designed it to be and do? Do you want your church to be stable? Guess what? When each one of us picks up our gift, that's what results. Last thing, and this is as Paul wraps up this passage, he's kind of coming full circle now. Unity results. Productivity. He talks about ligaments and body parts and everything kind of coming together. You know what Paul's doing there in that last two verses? He's just standing back and saying, man, look at the body. Look at that body. When everybody's doing what everybody's supposed to be doing, when they're given, when they're working with the abilities that they've been given, man, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful design. It's doing exactly what God created to do. And unity is the result. At the beginning of the chapter, we're commanded to keep the unity. In the middle of the chapter, or in the middle of this passage, we're given an ability to each play a role in keeping that unity. And now as we come to the end of this passage, what's the result? Unity. The beauty of folks, anything God calls us to do, He shows us, He explains it, and He equips us. There's very little for us to figure out here. Just walk in God's design. Now, here's the thing. You've been commanded to be a part of this. You've been equipped. You do realize, you do realize you're going to stand before God. And you're going to answer for your role in keeping the unity. Your commitment to that. Your obedience to that. You're going to answer for how you picked up this ability that you've been given and how you used it. That might lead just a few of us scratching our head right now and saying, whoa, 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 what's my gift? I mean, how, how can I be held accountable if I didn't even know I had it? Well, let's talk about that for a second. I think there's three things real quickly that we can do. Number one, you start with Scripture. Go to those passages that we mentioned. Open up. Look at that list. Whether I'm right or wrong about that list changing and being static or whether new gifts are added, you can certainly look at that list and see, okay, now here's the kinds of things God provides. These are the kinds of things God wants to see happening in the body of Christ. Get familiar with the tools, the equipment that God gives members on the team. Second thing you do, pray. 
There's a novel idea, isn't it? <laughs> Ask the team owner. Hey, which one of these belongs to me? Well, which, which one of these has my name on it? Ask God for insight, for wisdom to what He's given you. And lastly, test. And I believe this is where God will answer your prayer. Test the gifts out. You can do that a couple of ways. Now, this is kind of new to humanity. I mean, most of, most of believers throughout history have not had this opportunity. But, but in our culture, in our time, there is actually such a thing as a spiritual gift inventory test. You, you can take a test. And, and, and it will give you an idea. I don't know that it's a perfect tool, but I believe it'll certainly give you a running start. It'll certainly give you an idea. Okay, these might be what my spiritual gifts might be. Then you take that and you test. You, you just said test. No, I mean start testing the waters. You, you, you walk into the waters of the church and you start doing these things. You start ministering and you look for this. What blesses the body? Did you hear that? What blesses the body? Here again, I hear so much just wrong understanding of the purpose of spiritual gifts. I hear so many people talk about the blessing it is in their life, what it does for their life, how it helps them grow in Christ. Folks, you won't find a passage that talks about how the gift is a blessing to you. Now, hands down, when you're picking up your gift and using it like you're supposed to, you're going to find joy. You're going to find fulfillment. Yes, I absolutely believe that. But your joy and fulfillment is not the determinant of what a gift is. The determinant is, is the body blessed? Is the body growing? When I function in that way, do, do I see people responding? Do I see people being encouraged? Do I see people growing, responding to the Lord? That's what we look for to help determine what a gift is. So you go out there and you just start trying different ministries. As I said last week, you go to Bible fellowship class. That's a conduit in our church to getting to a lot of ministries. Even outside of Bible fellowship, getting into music or Children or youth or one of these areas. The Bible Fellowship is the conduit by which you can be discipled, be trained, watch people do different ministries, and then try out different ministries yourself. Because here's the bottom line. Here is the bottom line. You're going to stand before God. And He's going to say, I gave you this. What did you do with it? I don't know. I didn't know, I thought, is not going to work. Are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the owner who gave you something? He gave it freely, but he will judge what you did with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now. And God, we, we pray as a body, we pray as individuals. We want to be found faithful. We want to have done what you have equipped us to do in this church. Lord, I pray that Colonial Heights Baptist will be a place where every member is playing its role. And, and, and Lord, I confess to you, I think we have settled for so much less. I, I pray that prayer about every member playing as well. I don't even know that I believe that, God. I, I confess my lack of faith as I pray that prayer. We have grown so used in the United States of America of watching a handful of people do the work while the multitude sits. Oh, God, what would it look like? 
what would it look like in our church if everyone, every follower of Christ, picked up their gift and served and ministered in the way that you've called us to? Oh, Lord, I think of what you said in Ephesians 3. It'd be beyond what we could imagine or even think. And, Father, I don't just pray that each individual member so that we as a whole. God, I pray for us as a church to play our part in the big church, in the capital C church. May our individual church be fulfilling its function and role in the churches of the world. God, we want to be found faithful. We want to respond worthy. We thank you that you've shown us that we are to do this. You've equipped us to do this. And you've promised it will result in that if we do it. So again, God, help us be faithful. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.